question as he thinks back about people like Gideon and thinks forward to people like you and me. Why wouldn't we take advantage of grace? If you look in your Bibles at Romans chapter 6, you know the Apostle Paul is dealing with that question. And he has to because he has just said something very dangerous. He has just said, explaining the history of humanity, where sin increased, grace did what? Much more increased, abounded all the more. So you can just kind of anticipate now the mental cogs of the wheels in the brains of his opponents going, well, if where sin increases, grace increases all the more, then why don't we just sin and then there'll be more grace? It's something like the poet and author W.H. Auden once wrote. He, He said... God loves forgiving crimes. I love committing crimes. The world is really wonderfully arranged. (laughs) Paul is dealing with that, and he actually says, in answer to the question, Romans 6, verse 1 through 14, why just grace being so good doesn't lead to more sin. He actually asked the question in Romans 6.1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God In Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Uh, Anyone who's been a leader in the church knows the dilemma. I remember facing it more squarely than I wanted some years ago when I was pastoring another church and a a young couple 
had been wonderfully changed and transformed by the fellowship of believers in our church and the ministry of the Lord in their hearts. Their marriage had been coming undone. They were fractured. They were unraveled. And yet as they came for counseling and fellowship and people began to help them, the marriage was, was wonderfully healed and this couple was doing so much better. Until the young woman got sick and had to be hospitalized for a while. And when she was in the hospital, she began to be visited by an old boyfriend. The husband objected. She told him he was just being silly. And in reaction, he left the hospital room picked up an old girlfriend of his and moved into her trailer. Now, I did what pastors do. You know, I kind of girt up my loins, I drove to the trailer, knocked on the door, and said, Bill, you need to get out of here. You need to get back with your wife and give your marriage a chance. And I will not soon forget what he said. God will forgive me later. I'm going to stay right here. Now, how would you answer? I mean, your theology actually believes that God will forgive him later. I mean, you're not going to deny that. I mean, I know it has to be genuine repentance. Yes, I know that. But but you're not going to say that his sin is greater than the grace of God. You you actually do believe that God, if there's genuine repentance, will forgive him later. So how, how do you address someone who is saying, I believe in the grace of God in such a way that it's giving him license to continue in sin? It's, it's the very problem the apostle is dealing with here as his opponents are saying, if we actually go with you on this, this notion that the grace of God is what makes us right before him and not the righteousness of our own doing, then what you're actually providing is people licensed to sin. And you you have to know the apostle is going to say, no, I'm not. Now, it's clear if you just kind of look at the question and answer in verse 1 and 2. You know, Paul asks the question his opponents are accusing him of allowing. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And what's the opening words of verse 2? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? What's he say, verse 2? By no means. By no means. Now, now, you must know, and you know, we have a Bible scholar in the room, and so we have to say, this is about as strong a Greek phrase as you can get. And, and the, uh, kind of the English equivalent is, no way! <laughs> you know, no way! And he's so intense in saying it's going to appear again in verse 15. I didn't read that because it's starting a new thought, but he kind of brings it up again. Verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? And he says it again, what? By no means. No way. But no, Paul, you don't get the logic of your own argument. (laughs) Yeah, I get it. I understand. But because we have grace, we are united to Christ in such a way, he is saying, that there is going to be a chemistry of the heart that's going to be more powerful than the math of the mind. The logic of the mind is going to say, well, let's just continue. But, but something else is happening in the heart that is more powerful 
by virtue of the grace of God. And this means implicitly that you, by the grace of God, do not have a license to sin. We don't say, Christian, let me show you, license to sin. You know, it's kind of like James Bond, license to kill, but I'm a Christian, I got license to sin. No, Paul says, no, you don't. You do not have a license to sin. In fact, what you actually have as a Christian, rather than a license to sin, is you have a death certificate. Do you know that? Look at verse 3. After the apostles just said, how can we who died to sin still live in it? He says, verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, the apostle is beginning to establish that we don't have a license to sin, but another identity entirely. And the other identity that we have by the grace of God is established first by the fact that that old identity we had is dead. And it is marked in its death by our baptism. By our baptism, we signal to the world in the presence of the church that we are dead who once identified us with the world, with an old life, with an old being, an old identity. Now, the reason we don't think of baptism in our culture today as a death certificate is it's too common among us. I mean, we think of it kind of as a rite of passage, a way of joining the church, a way of identifying what our faith... And it's all of those things. But if you were a first century Jew or Gentile, you would well understand... Why the apostle is saying, when you are baptized, you die. There there is a death that you are declaring and the church is declaring upon you. This baptism, this, this symbol, is a death certificate that is put upon you about your past. Now you just think of it. I'm a Jew. And I've lived with the affiliations and loyalties and family and ethnic identification of Jews going back thousands of years. And suddenly I am saying, no, my new identity is established by loyalty to Jesus Christ. And in this baptism, I am coming under His banner. I'm joining His body. I'm identifying with His hope and not the past hope that some have claimed. If you were a Gentile and you're coming in, you're doing the same thing. Not my family, not my past religion, not my past... I'm saying that's dead to me. And my life and my hope are now identified with this new loyalty in Christ Jesus. I'm with Him now. And that notion of being with Him is not, not just something of an ancient day. I mean, if you weren't in Christian circles all the time, you would understand the death certificate understanding. Some of you may have Muslim, former Muslim, former Hindu friends who have become Christians. And if you're in that context, you know there is something their families say to them even today when they become Christians. What does the family say when they become Christians? They say, you are now what? You're now dead to us. A year ago, this past October, in Morocco, there was a young Muslim who became a Christian and in a church in Morocco was baptized and coming out of the church was set upon by a group of young Muslims who began to stab him to try to assassinate him. The Christians in the church actually rescued him and even though he was terribly wounded, 
he was saved and sent to the United States only to discover that the ones who had hired the assassins were his own family. You are dead to us. If that's your loyalty, if that's who you're identifying with, you have said everything that was your life is now dead and you're identified with something else. The baptism is an indication of a separation from the past. It is at the very same moment an indication of identification with Christ's death. Not just our death, but identification with Christ's death. I'm just going to capture key phrases of verses 4, 5, and 6 and ask you to look at your Bibles and recognize it's not just something separated from ourselves. It's, it's not just our death indicated. This, this identification with the body of believers in baptism is an identification with Christ's death as well. Verse 4. We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death. Verse 5. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with Him. Do you hear the union terminology? He died. If you're with Him, then what? Then you died. You're identified with His death. Now, the way in which that's being expressed is, is absolutely beautiful and, and rich with theological understanding because of what it tells us is good about our death. In verse 6, if you just look at that wording, we know that our old self was crucified with him. Now that word self in the Greek, and you'll actually see it in some of your ESV footnotes, is just the Greek word for man. We know that our old man was crucified. Now that's language the Apostle Paul has been developing in this and the preceding chapter. He said, what does it mean that our old man was, what man are we talking about? The old man, the old self that was crucified, that's united to Christ's death. What, what are we talking about? If you'll let your eyes back in to the previous chapter, to chapter 5, you'll see where this man terminology is originating. Verse 12 of chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, who are we talking about? Adam. Okay. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Verse 15. The free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and, right, and life for all men. Who is the one man with whom our old life was identified? Adam. It was the identity of sin and condemnation. And that man the apostle says, has been crucified with Christ. Because when we by saying, I'm, I'm now loyal to Christ, now I know the baptism doesn't make it happen, it's the visual representation of what our hearts have said, that what we are doing in fact is saying, my loyalty is with him now and therefore I am counting as dead what I previously counted upon to give me life and identity. That 
that what is happening is the man that you were being dead is like Christ is dead. And so the apostle says, it's, it's like you're now united with him on the cross. I mean, this, this language we don't often think of being that way, that we think of baptism as being something that totally happens to us, as something that totally identifies our sin being washed. It's all of that. But we don't recognize that in the Bible... The idea of being baptized is more than just a cleansing. It's the idea of uniting with something else. Now, if, if you really want to see that, look at, first, you still got your Bibles open? 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10. And, and here's the same language being used in a way that will make you kind of open up this idea of you're united to something entirely new, even as something has died. 1 Corinthians 10 And just the first two verses. I want you to know, brothers. You're still turning. Let me get you there. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 and 2. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Do you remember that? We were baptized into Christ... United with him, and now the apostle... Now listen, you were in Egypt. You were Pharaoh's slaves. But now as you have passed through the cloud and the sea, you are separated from your past, and you are united to whom? Moses. That's your new identity. Your your life is in him now. And just as you can kind of see the Israelites coming out of slavery and death in Egypt, now to be united with Moses on the journey to the promised land, so the Apostle Paul is willing to say in Romans, your baptism marks, now again, I know it's the visual representation of what your heart's commitment is, but what you're saying is, my loyalty is no longer with past affiliations. I'm separated from that. That's dead to me. And I am now united to Christ. I'm baptized into Him. And that identity of being into him means that the old self is dead and we are as dead as Christ was upon the cross with that old man united to him in his death. Now, those are kind of theologically rich concepts with lots of history. The question we have to ask ourselves is, why is this a good thing? (laughs) Why did the apostle want it to be so clear to us that we are united to the death of Christ. Well, key thoughts. First, because we are united to the death of Christ, we are freed from the guilt of sin. Look at verse 6 of chapter 6 of Romans. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. The old man, that part of me that was identified with Adam, is nailed to the cross. What was characterized by that body of Adam's identity? Corruption, weakness, sin, guilt, shame. I look to my past and I say, how could I have done that? Look how my family suffers because of my own poor choices. Look, look how I can't even lift up my head and acknowledge to others the way in which I have lived and done, even in knowledge at times. Wouldn't it be wonderful to you 
if you actually believed that all that was bringing you guilt and shame was nailed to the cross and was not true of you anymore, it was dead. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. It's, it's the beauty of being dead. <laughs> that all that was wrong about us is nailed to the cross. The apostle makes so much of this. We don't often see the, the book of Romans in scope. But let me just kind of show you what, what the implication of the fact that our body of sin has been brought to nothing because we are united to the death of Christ. Would you just let your eyes go forward to Romans 7 and verse 1, where the apostle is following through on this thought of what it would really mean if you believed that you were dead in Christ. In verse 1 of chapter 7, he says, Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Hey, what actually condemns you? You have broken the law of God. But listen... If you're dead, the law no longer applies. Dead people don't get speeding tickets, you know? Dead people don't get bad report cards. Why? Because they're dead. (laughs) There's no more application of the negative aspects of the law to you so that now go to Romans 8 and verse 1, and you already know this, many of you in your heart. There is therefore now what? No condemnation to those who are in united to Christ Jesus. Why? Because they're united to his death. And the law no longer applies to those who are dead. In, uh, for the 28 years that I worked at Covenant Seminary, uh, the, the highway right in front of our house was the busiest highway in St. Louis, and we were just at the crest of a hill. And one day we heard the sirens just kind of in multiple multiple number rushing to that one spot and what we discovered it happened is that uh, a truck driver uh, distracted on his cell phone had uh, come across the top of that hill not recognizing that there was a line of traffic stopped in front of him so he topped the hill ran into the line of traffic killed four people and did not even get a ticket at all Why? Because he died too. When you're dead, the law does not condemn you. And the wrath of God does not come against you because you are. You're dead. To be united to Christ means that the guilt of sin is no longer yours. But something else is is no longer yours if you are united to the death of Christ. No longer are you under the guilt of sin. You are free from that. You are also free. If you're dead, you are free from the control of sin. Now, I know it sounds silly, but you must know that. Dead people are not under the control of anything. They are no longer slaves to sin. That's where the apostle in Romans 6, at the end of verse 6, actually ends the thought. Remember that? Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be what? 
enslaved to sin. Dead people are not under the control of sin. In one of my early pastoral charges, it was in an agricultural community. And in that farming community, one of my very sad tasks as a very young pastor was, was um, conducting the funeral of an eight-year-old girl. She, she did what I and many other kids raised in farming communities do, and that was one day she went out with her dad who was uh, working a field on the tractor and she rode on the fender, you know, right next to her dad. She rode on the fender and yet it was a new field and he didn't know about a particular ditch and the tractor hit it and she bounced off the fender and she was killed in the fall. I conducted that funeral and did what often happens in rural communities. A lot of you know what this means. You know, after the funeral, you, you go to a house where the meal is brought in and family from out of town are you know, fed before they go on their trip home. And we were, we were having that, that meal after the funeral. And there were lots of young kids because this was a young family. And so the, the kids kind of got relegated to a portion of the living room where the TV could be turned on to kind of distract them while you know the adults ate and talked and when the TV came on just as it was playing there was actually a public service announcement that came on while the kids were watching and the public service announcement was about just saying no to drugs remember that campaign just say no but what it showed was a young woman who was kind of getting sucked into the seedy life of an urban setting and being pulled into a drug lifestyle. But what caused horror in the room was the young woman depicted in the commercial could have been a twin of the young girl that we just buried. And we all saw it. And the mom saw it. And we couldn't help but wonder, how is she going to react? And what she did when she saw the commercial and saw the recognition in all of our eyes is she got up out of her chair and she shook her finger at the TV and she said, but you can't touch my baby. You cannot touch my baby. She is with Jesus now. (laughs) She cannot be controlled. She cannot be touched by the sin of the world. She cannot be enslaved by it. Why? Because she's dead. But at the same moment, united to Jesus. And the apostle is speaking not just in the resurrection reality to come, he is speaking in the reality of the present tense of those who by their baptism are identifying themselves with Christ, a body of believers, and by this new identity declare the past dead and therefore united to Christ in his death. And because I am dead, sin no longer controls me. I know it's just a logical argument so far. You have to hang with me to see where the apostle is going. But he just wants you to know, if you're dead, you are not a slave to anything. You know, talk about you can't kick a dead horse. Listen, it doesn't matter if you kick a dead person. If they're dead, they don't react. They're not under the control of the influences of the world. They're dead. Now... The reaction of what this dead is, is important because you have to see the apostle is not going to start by, stop by saying that's the full story. You, you're not just united to the death of Christ. What's the other half of the story? You're also united to the, the life of Christ. 
But, but he's got to have you understand how close this identity is so that you will take full advantage of it in your heart and ultimately in your motivation. So the apostle is going to say to us, I want you to just hear these words. If you'll move upward through the passage. We were crucified with him. That's verse 6. Verse 5. We were united with him in a death like his. Verse 4. We were buried with him. Now if you just follow that pattern, we were crucified, dead, and buried with Christ. Now you know that language. Crucified, dead, and buried. Where do you hear that language? That's the Apostles' Creed, right? He was what? Crucified, dead, and buried. And on the third day he... (laughs) If you're united to him in his death, crucified, dead, and buried, then Paul says you are as surely united to him in his resurrection life. If you're really united to him, it's it's a full union. And that means you are not just united to his death, you are united to his life. And what are the implications of that? Verse 5. If we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This union is complete. If he's alive and we're united to him, we will be alive. Now, the apostle is first just going to talk about the eternal security that we have because he said, Christ is alive and we know he's not going to die again. And if you're united to him, what does that mean? It means you have eternal security as well. And verses 5 through 10 are basically just going on that, if you're united to him and he's risen, that means you have eternal life too. That means you have resurrection power too. And the apostle is going to keep driving that point. Look especially at verse 8 and see how he says it. Verse 8. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. What applies to him applies to us. And this... This eternal security is giving us just a hint of a new calling. Because if you're eternally secure, then not only are you dead in this life, it means this life no longer threatens you. You have no fear. Because you're dead to this world, but you're alive eternally with Christ. To some of you, and again, for a lot of the men's group, this is great to talk about. Do you remember the movie Big Fish a few years ago? Where, where there's a, a young man who is just exasperated with his father. Because his father is always telling these, you know, these big fish stories, which are really the, these amazing adventures that the dad has lived, supposedly, in this extravagant life. And the son just says, you know, that can't be. You know, you, you can't have done all those things. You can't have lived in that amazing way. And the son, you know, just totally gets exasperated with his father. He just keeps telling of these amazing adventures he's lived. But then as the movie unfolds, what you discover is that early in his life, the father had revealed to him the moment and the nature of his death. And so the man knows that until that moment comes, he is totally immortal. He can do anything. And so he just lives this extravagant, adventurous life, knowing it can't touch him until the right moment. What the Apostle Paul says to you and to me is, that moment never comes. (laughs) You are dead, yes, to Christ. But you are united to the one who rose from the dead. And that means his life is eternal and your life is 
eternal. And I say this to the young men in the room, what, what that means is you can invest in the things of Christ with absolute fearlessness, with, with an absolute understanding that though it may go bad for a time, it may be hard in this life, but 10,000 times 10,000 years are years ahead of glory with the Father in Christ Jesus. Listen, you may not be president in this life, but listen, 10,000 years times, everybody's going to be president someday. We'll just take turns, you know? Every, everybody gets glory. Everybody, so what could, if you absolutely believe that now, what would you be willing to give yourself to, to risk, to live for, the nobility with which you'd willing to live beyond just the satisfaction of self? You know, so many people, we, we just recognize the demographics in our society now. So many young people are, are not pursuing careers, don't want to get in the rat race that they saw their fathers in because they say, number one, first generation in American history that does not expect to have the affluence of its parents. First generation in American history that does not expect to exceed the affluence of its parents, but to actually have less. And so what you have is young men in huge numbers throughout this culture are just settling. You know, as long as I have, you know, a, a fast car, a flat screen, and a willing partner, you know, why bother with anything else? I mean, if I got enough pleasure for the moment, why push myself? But if you absolutely believed that your life was secure and eternal, you could live the most noble, serving of others, selfless, brave adventure for Christ that is possible because you simply believe, I'm united to Christ. And, and what that means is I'm secure eternally. I can give myself to His purposes. I have eternal security but but you have more than eternal security if you're united to the life of Christ you don't just have eternal security you have present ability you, you, you want to see that look at verse 1 again uh, verse 6 again we know that our old self was crucified him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin why verse 7 For one who has died has been set free from sin. But you haven't just been set free from sin, verse 8. If we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. Well, verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. He's not going to die. We're united to Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. Verse 11, the culmination so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Wait a second. He died on the cross. But He rose again. If He is alive and you are united to Him, that means the power that's His is ours it's Galatians 2.20 right I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ Christ lives where in me and the life that I live in the flesh I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me he gave himself by dying but he is alive where in me that means the resurrection power that brought Christ from the dead that gave life to his 
mortal, dead body, that same resurrection power is in me. I am united to Him. And therefore, I have life that is power. Now, you, you, you have to recognize the significance of this. If you truly, fundamentally believe that the resurrection power of Jesus Christ is in you, then when Satan comes to you and says, you can't help it, you can't stop it, you're a slave to those passions, to those habits, to those addictions. You're just a slave. What does the Apostle Paul say? That is a lie. If you are in Christ Jesus, then the body of sin is dead, but the body of Christ is alive where? In you. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The, the hope for us believers is saying, listen, tomorrow does not have to be like yesterday. Real change is possible because you are a new creature in Christ Jesus. I don't feel like a new creature. I just feel like myself. No, listen. There was a time that you could not help it, that you were a slave to sin. You were united to Adam. That was your total identity. But that is not your identity anymore. Your identity in Adam is what? Dead. Your identity is now in Christ who is resurrected and seated at the right hand of God. That Christ who now is in glory is also in you and the power that raised him from the dead gives life to your mortal body. Why do you have to know that? Because listen, if you do not believe that you can win the battle, you've already lost the fight. And there are many of us who kind of said, I've struggled with this for so long. I've, I've wrestled for so long. It's, it's my nature, it's my character, it's the way God made me. It's actually His fault. And you need to hear what the Bible is saying. You must, by faith, understand that you are united, not just to the death of Christ, you are united to the life of Christ. And by faith, claim the power that is yours. And do not believe the lie of Satan who says, you can't help it, you can't change. Listen, this is hope. Real change is possible. Freedom is possible because you are united to Christ. And that's not just eternal security. That is present ability. If you by faith claim the very promises of Scripture that are yours and do not believe the lie of Satan that says you can't be different than you are. You are a dead to sin and alive to God. Now, hardly any of you in the room know my wife, but I will tell you, she's one of the gentlest people I know. But every now and then, <laughs> I will hear some steel in her voice. And the most common time that happens is when one of our children is, is down on himself or herself. I've, I've got a daughter graduating high school, and I will tell you, calculus this year was a real trial. <laughs> And, you know, if it gets late enough, I will hear this, this daughter saying, I am so stupid. I am so dumb. I will never get this right. I, I'm, I'm terrible. I'm awful. And, and, and I will hear my wife say, now you stop that. You are smart and you are able and you can do this. And I'm going to say, praise God. <laughs> you be what you are. You, you, you actually can do this. And the apostle is saying to you and me, you are united to Christ. Now, 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 don't you say you can't help it. Don't you say that tomorrow has to be like yesterday. No, listen. You are 
able. Because you are united to Christ. And when you know that, you have to say, now life can really be different. This is hope. This is the reality in which we live. Now listen, if, if you actually have eternal security and present ability, why don't you exercise it? You have to ask that question. I mean, this is true of all of us who are in Christ Jesus. We actually have the ability to, to resist what, the Satan, what Satan is doing to us and, and what the Holy Spirit is revealing to us. Now, I, I confess, and you and I know, that the Holy Spirit has this wonderful way of kind of shining the spotlight in one area of our lives, and we go, oh boy, right? And then, and then you know, by His grace and by His power, we, we kind of get that area cleaned up a little bit. What does the Holy Spirit do with the spotlight? What does the Holy Spirit do with the spotlight next? <laughs> by the way, have you looked at this? <laughs> you know. but, but what the Holy Spirit is revealing to us the Spirit of Jesus is giving us power to overcome. If, if, if you believe that, then why don't you do it? Because sometimes we don't have the right motivation. And that's why the last thing the Apostle Paul is going to do in this passage is not just tell us our new identity, that we're united to Christ. He is going to tell us our new calling, the true motivation, which is to honor the Christ that we love. This is why grace is not a license to sin. It's, it's that work in the heart that is this, this new chemistry that's creating gratitude and love and thanksgiving whereby we are wanting to say, I want to live for Him. I'm, I'm not wanting to be a slave to sin anymore. I want you to see the dimensions of this new calling that we have. Verse 12, Romans 6. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. But, verse 13, do not present your members as, to sin as instruments for righteousness. Pre- present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Now, two key terms. Verse 12, don't let sin reign in your mortal body, but rather, into verse 13, present your members as instruments for righteousness. Now, again, these are terms that have history already in the passage. If you'll go to chapter 5, And verse 17, you're going to find that something is a result of the sin of Adam. Verse 17, chapter 5, If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Since Adam, what has held sway in the world? What reigns from the time of Adam forward? Sin and death. The characterization of there is corruption. There is death in the world. Our difficulties, the the harm in the world, that everybody, all is part of the reign of death. But now because we are united to Christ, sin no longer has reign over us. Instead, we become those who are instruments of righteousness. That is, those who have the ability and the right and the calling to turn back, to roll back the tide of unrighteousness that is the reign of sin. We actually are the instruments of God to overcome the darkness. We have a new calling. It is to make a difference in the world. God has said to you and to me, you you are my instruments for righteousness to overcome the reign of darkness, of sin and death. 
I've given you that calling. And, and one of the reasons that we do not simply yield to sin is we recognize it is not fitting for those who are instruments of righteousness to combat the reign of darkness. At, at, at Covenant Seminary, we have a number of young men and women these days who are training to have service in the military, but particularly I think of those young men who are training to be chaplains. And, and, I, and I think of them on an ordinary day. Right, Brian will know this too. How are they dressed? You know, ordinary day at school, jeans, t-shirt. You know, they kind of slouch the class like everybody else. You know, <laughs> but there are certain days in which they are called upon a Veterans Day, a Memorial Day, to wear their uniform. And it's so interesting to me to see the same young men who've been kind of uncaring about their appearance, when they put on the uniform, suddenly the shoulders square and the chin goes up and they walk as those befitting the uniform of their nation. They recognize for whom they stand. And you must recognize that for those of us who are called to be united to Christ, to turn back the reign of darkness, one of the chief motivations for us is just the understanding that I'm in a position of privilege. God God has called me into His service to turn back the reign of darkness. I am a soldier of the Savior for Christ's sake. And there are some things just not now befitting of what I am called to be and do for Christ's sake. But it's, it's not just that I have this privilege. I, I recognize that I also have a, a great joy. Do you recognize that, that we are told in verse 13 not to present our members to sin as instruments for righteousness, but present yourself to God? Now, when I say that, I know there are some people who automatically go, oh, no. I have to live before the face of God. Uh-oh. We actually have a phrase, right? You know, that Latin, the quorum Deo, we live before the face of God. Now, you have to recognize, though, that the apostle is not meaning to make you shudder by that language. He says in verse 13, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Whose life? You are united to Christ. You present yourself to God as one who has the identity of Jesus Christ. I'll ask you a hard question. If you're dead and Jesus is alive in you, who are you? See, nobody wants to say they're Jesus, but okay. I'll make it simpler. If you're dead and Jesus is alive in you, whose identity do you have? Jesus. Present yourselves to God as one who has the identity of Jesus, which means God looks upon you as he looks upon his own precious child. You are not living under the frown of God. You are living under the smile of God with the affection of the Heavenly Father. And Jesus says, present yourself to my Father as one who is loved as much as I am. 
And when I begin to recognize that that is my privilege, not just to represent the Father turning back the reign of darkness, but to actually represent the Son and live before God as one who is loved eternally, as loved as Jesus Christ, I begin to recognize this is joy inexpressible. He knows the worst about me and loves me as much as he loves Jesus. What, what do I want to do as a result? I want, I want to return love. I mean, that, that, that's gratitude now that begins to work in our lives as well. As I begin to say, if he loves me that much, I want to love him back. I want to love him too. I, I, I can remember the very first date I ever had with my wife. Her parents went along. Um, New pastor, single pastor, little church, after a church service, one of the elders, her father, asked, would you like to go on a picnic with us? Single pastor, what did I say? You bet. (laughs) Of course, there's food. I'll I'll go. (laughs) We drive up along the Mississippi River, what's called the Great River Road, limestone bluffs on one side, fall day, the leaves are turning, we have the picnic, and after the picnic, now just imagine this, all right, sunny day, leaves are turning, brilliant gold hues, sky is blue, great meal. And this young woman says to me then, would you like to take a walk with me? Now let me describe this for you again. It's blue sky... She's got blonde hair, green eyes, red sweater, and she says, would you like to take a walk with me? What did I say? I said, well, I think that. you bet. <laughs> of course I want to walk with you. You're, you're beautiful. And, and what we're being told here is that God says to us, listen, you can be part of the reign of God in this world. You can be an instrument for Christ turning back the darkness. And you do this because you live under the smile of God, the one who loves you as much as he loves his own son. And, and will you do this? With it? Father, if you love me this much, I want to walk with you. You have shown me the beauty of the grace of God. Why would I want to go back to Egypt? Why would I want to go back to slavery? I know that darkness. I know the way those tentacles come about my heart. I know the way it's affected my heart, my life, my family, my job, my future. Why, Lord, would I go back there? If you are offering me the wonder of a walk with you, why wouldn't I want to walk with you? And it's, it's pointing to the slavery that we were in and the freedom that we can have in Jesus Christ that becomes the great motivation to, to live with God. And the Apostle finally says it in words that, that are just scary for their impact. He says in verse 14 to end the section, For sin will have no dominion over you since you were not, are not under law but under grace. Why? Why is grace not a license to sin? Because by grace, I see the slavery of sin. And why would I want to go back there if I've really seen it for what it is? Listen, one of the things that I've, I've learned recently from, from Tim Keller, I know a lot of you listen to Tim, but I, I just learned such good things from him. And what he says is, in New York City these days, working with so many young people, young professionals, in a culture that is so secular and postmodern, he said it is practically fruitless to say to young people today, you shouldn't do that because if you do, you'll be bad. Or you'll feel shame or guilt. You know what kind of response is? From whom? You know, my friends don't mind my doing this. 
My parents apparently don't care. Certainly the world doesn't care if I do this. What do you mean I'll feel bad? I'll be bad or feel sh- I don't feel any shame. I don't feel bad. He said that the great thing that people try to escape these days, really the only evil in the world, is not shame. It is slavery. No one wants to be enslaved. The great example of that for a lot of younger generation is Amy Winehouse. Some of you in the room will know who that is. Amazing, great singer. She in some ways was idolized by a generation not just for the quality of her voice, but for her attitude and lifestyle. Young rebel, thunder nose at traditional life and traditional world. Her, her fans loved her for that until the alcohol began to enslave her. And then as she would begin to forget words at the, comp- at the concerts or, or not show up for concerts and go into rehab repeatedly, they began to turn away from her. Not because she was bad, but because she was enslaved. She died, according to her father, because she tried to detoxify herself too fast from the alcohol, as though the alcohol were actually reaching up from the grave to drag her in with its bonds of slavery. And young people understand slavery. And no one wants to be enslaved. And so the apostle says to you and to me, You are united to Christ. In him there is life. And no longer shall sin have dominion over you. Why would you go back to slavery? The grace of God has freed you from that. And when you have understood the goodness and the greatness of that, you understand why it is so good to live with Christ in you. Freeing you from guilt, but also freeing you from sin. You saw this out of you two years ago. Gordon Yeager, 94 years old, with his wife, Norma, killed in an automobile accident. They had been married 72 years. As they were injured and dying, they were taken to the hospital. And because they'd been together for 72 years, local hospital, they let them be together on the gurneys in the emergency room. And these two older people held hands as life went out of them. Gordon died first. But even after he died, the heart monitor continued to show a heartbeat. Why? Because he was still holding Norma's hand. And it was her life beating through him, giving him life. She was dying. Jesus Christ is alive and lives eternally. And for those who in faith unite to him, he says, I give you my life, freeing you from sin and shame and freeing you from slavery. Why would you go back there? 
when you can walk with me in new life. Father, would you work the gospel into us again? We confess that there is a logic of the mind that would have us take advantage of grace. But help us to see the chemistry of the heart and feel the power of it whereby we want to be freed from its slavery and we want to know the reality of life in Christ day by day. Give us, Father, union with Christ that is a daily reality and the power of the gospel. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for a conference whose theme is on practical sanctification, I hope you are, your cup is just spilling over in hope right now. I mean, from last night, being reminded that God uses useless people. And then this morning to just be reminded of the reality of being free from sin. You have about 30 minutes, and in the past, uh, there's been some criticism on this particular break. It's a long day, let's keep it moving, you know. You have 30 minutes. Why don't you take some time and pray during that 30 minutes? Maybe meditate on some of these things that have been being preached, and, and consider perhaps some things that you have let enslave you in the past. Take some time and let these truths wash over you. Brothers, um, use this 30 minutes well, will you? Go fellowship in the gospel.